This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is building your character. In the first half, Michelle D. Craig and Michael O. Levitt share their addresses. This is my day of opportunity and the economics of goodness. Then in the second half, Robert H. Todd speaks on, so what do you really want to be when you grow up? Although I grew up in Provo, right before my junior year of high school, my family moved to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. President Spencer W. Kimball, the prophet at the time, called my father to serve as a mission president, and so my family packed up and left. When I moved back to Provo for my freshman year of college, I came alone, and I saw the BYU campus through the eyes of a new freshman, away from home and family. I didn't know a soul when I moved into the dorms. I had been really lonely in high school, but I determined that I would use this opportunity as a fresh start. My brother challenged me to learn the names of three new people each day and then call them by name whenever I saw them. I volunteered for service opportunities that took me outside of my comfort zone. And of course, even talking to some people was outside of my comfort zone. I learned that focusing on others made me happier. And it was here at BYU that I found joy in keeping my covenants as I got myself out of bed on Sunday mornings and attended church. And I learned the value of time. I know that you are entering finals and your time is precious and you may be feeling some anxiety about that. I honestly still have a recurring nightmare that I'm back in school and that it's finals week, but that I didn't attend class once all semester. (laughs) In fact, in my dreams, I can't even remember where my classroom is when I try to attend one last class period before the final. We can all relate to feelings of fear and panic when we realize that there just may not be enough time to finish what we have committed to do. Speaking of panic, I remember walking into the testing center. There were times I walked in with dread, knowing that I was not prepared, but that it was too late to do anything about it. Other times I remember feeling a quiet confidence. I had paid the price and felt comfortable in my mastery of the material I would be tested on. This life is like a testing center. Occasionally, we are given true and false tests in life—clear right and wrong choices, moments of truth. At those moments, stand up, stand tall, choose with courage. But more often, everyday life hands us multiple-choice tests, and sometimes they feel like the ones we are convinced our professor is using to try to trick us. Is it A? B, C, A and C, all of the above, none of the above. All the choices may be good, but wrong for this moment. Do we study or go to the temple? Major in French or philosophy? Multiple choice tests of life, including our decisions about the use of our time, require wisdom and deeper understanding. That's why they are given to us by our school teachers and by the great teacher and refiner of our souls. Amulek reminds us that this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. 
Using our time wisely is not just a matter of having more self-discipline or willpower, of utilizing the latest planner or time management app to help us organize and prioritize. We make real change when we understand the gift of time, the gift of a new day. Years ago, I heard a talk by President Thomas S. Monson that changed the way I thought about my time. He wrote about making the most of our opportunities and warned us to, quote, Turn away from the tempting allurement and eventual snare so cunningly and carefully offered us by old man procrastination. Two centuries ago, Edward Young said that procrastination is the thief of time. Actually, procrastination is much more. It is the thief of our self-respect. It nags at us and spoils our fun. It deprives us of the fullest realization of our ambition and hopes. Knowing this, we jar ourselves back to reality with the sure knowledge that this is my day of opportunity. I will not waste it. End quote. That last line remained in my mind and in my heart. I typed up that phrase, This is my day of opportunity. I will not waste it. And I put it on my refrigerator as a constant reminder that each day is a gift. And what I choose to do with the time and the talents I have been given is my gift to God each day. Each time I went to the fridge, I remembered my commitment not to waste my opportunity. I look out and I see outstanding young men and young women who have worked hard and you're here at a university that aims not only to provide a world-class education, but also to assist individuals in their quest for perfection and eternal life. This truly is your day of opportunity. In the 1890s, an Italian economist named Vilfredo Pareto, okay, say that fast a few times, he observed that 80% of the wealth in his country was controlled by just 20% of the population. This realization led to a theory that plays out in many areas of life. It's known as the Pareto Principle, the 80-20 Rule, or the Law of the Vital Few. 80% of our success comes from only 20% of our activities. For example, Microsoft found that by fixing the top 20% of the most reported bugs, 80% of the errors and crashes in a given system would be removed. In business, there's a saying that 20% of clients bring in 80% of the revenue. Some say that the same holds true in sports and that 15% of the players produce 85% of the total wins, while the other 85% of the players create 15% of the wins. This principle, although interesting when applied to computers, clients, or sports, is crucial to understand in life. Most of our progress comes from only a few key things. I've said it before that being more does not necessarily equate to doing more. It's easy to get caught in a busyness trap and spend our time on activities that contribute little to our overall goals while procrastinating the top 10 or 20 percent of things that are most valuable and important. In the most recent General Conference, President Russell M. Nelson said, quote, I plead with you to take a prayerful look at how you spend your time. End quote. If we want to avoid wasting our day of opportunity, the answer isn't just to go faster. We want to go in the right direction, to focus on the vital few things that determine our success. 
So what should we focus on? Years ago, I heard Elder Jeffrey R. Holland speak at the funeral of an outstanding young man in my ward named Ben. In speaking of Ben, he reminded us of what matters most in each new day of opportunity. Elder Holland taught me that we can learn about life's vital few things when faced with the passing of someone we love. Quote, One of the benefits of attending a funeral is that we get a tremendous reminder that this world is not our home, and no one in this room ought to think that it is. Nobody came here to stay, and nobody is going to do so. We sometimes live and think and act like this is home, that everything we can accrue and everything we can accomplish in a material or temporal or even a civic way is the be-all and end-all of life. Our mortal deeds and accomplishments are important. They are valuable. The best of them are gifts of God. We have a wonderful world. It is meant to be wonderful. But it is a wonderful way station, not a final destination. I will cherish the lessons that Ben has left with me about how you get ready to move on, what you spend your time doing and where you put your focus, and how much you need to remember that this is the telestial kingdom, not celestial. Ben taught that we ought to use the former to prepare for the latter. Elder Holland continued, When it comes down to it, there aren't very many things you can take out of this world. A funeral is quick to remind us of that. As near as I can tell, you take three things. You take your character, including what you've learned, what you've done, and who you've become. To build character is one of the purposes for which we are here. You take the ordinances of the gospel. Because of the ordinances, the third thing that we pray we can take and we plan to take and we want to take is our family. Character, ordinances, and family relationships— These three things became my vital few, the things I would give my best time and energy to. I also posted these words in a prominent place on my refrigerator to serve as a constant reminder. So learning from Elder Holland's advice on life and death, I want to talk with you about focusing on our character, on ordinances and covenants, and our family relationships. These three things should prioritize our never-ending to-do lists and motivate us to reduce distractions that keep us from things that really matter so that we don't waste our opportunity here on earth. But first, let me say that I hope you'll take notice of any impressions that will surely come to you if you're listening with the Spirit as we talk about these things. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story before we go on. When my nephew McKay was just a little boy, he had been playing with toys and he had made a big mess. My brother asked McKay to clean up, but each time he went to check on McKay, he found him doing a lot of playing but no cleaning. He was beginning to get exasperated, and McKay could tell. Finally, my brother asked McKay to stop and ask himself a question. What should I do? McKay thought for a minute, and then he said, Dad, listen. It's the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost is saying, McKay, do nothing. (laughs) I have a testimony that when it comes to asking with real intent what we need to do to improve our discipleship, to use our time and talents in a way that our Father in Heaven wants, the Holy Ghost will always tell us 
to do something. So listen and resolve to do something. Let's talk about character. God gives us experiences from which he intends us to forge a more divine character and invites us to join in his work of gathering Israel and helping others enjoy eternal life. That's a big goal, but help comes disguised in small packages. I remember getting ready for bed one Sunday night years ago. I was exhausted and discouraged. The kids were all very young. My husband Boyd was busy with work and was serving in a bishopric here on campus. He was gone most of the week and each Sunday from early in the morning until it was time for dinner, if we were lucky. I took the children to church each week in the Harris Fine Arts Center. Sacrament meetings were so quiet. I spent the entire time trying to keep my children busy and occupied so that they didn't disrupt the spirit of the entire meeting. Needless to say, I didn't get much out of the talks. We then hurried home so that we could go to our home ward for primary. I tried to make Sunday a special day, one where my children felt the Spirit and we learned together the gospel. I had heard wonderful women speak about this, but I felt that I spent most of my Sabbath breaking up fights, cleaning up messes, working in the kitchen, entertaining children, and watching the clock for when Boyd would finally make it home. Sunday was anything but a day of rest and spiritual renewal. I was so happy that Boyd was having the opportunities he was, and I knew our family was being blessed. But I couldn't help the feeling that while he was growing spiritually, I was backsliding and doing so quickly. I felt like I was just barely going through the motions and not getting any results. Well, as I fell into bed, I remembered I'd not read my scriptures, and frankly, I didn't even feel like it. I was tired and feeling a little sorry for myself. But I felt guilty, and so I sat up and opened my scriptures and told myself that reading just one verse would fill the requirement of reading my scriptures that day. The Lord blessed me that night. I opened my scriptures to a verse that has become one of my very favorites, Doctrine and Covenants 64.33. Wherefore, be not weary in well-doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work, and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. I will never forget the peace and light I felt as I read that verse, and the Spirit filled me and my heart was softened. The Spirit whispered to me that that great work that the Lord spoke about could be my life. It could be my family if I continued doing the small things that in the end would make a big difference, even if I did feel weary at times. The small children in my charge, my small decisions, were my great work. At that time, they were my chance at developing and helping others develop a more divine character. You will have different challenges. You may or may not have children who challenge you. You may or may not have a career, a calling, or a craft. You may be challenged by a spouse or by not having a spouse. The paths in front of you are as varied as the paths that brought you to BYU. But one thing I can promise you. God will be with you in the great work that lies ahead of you, whatever it is. Any worthwhile goal will require a lot of work and weariness and well-doing. You'll need to push ahead when staying back and resting would be easier. And unless I miss my guess, the doors of your success will turn on small hinges, habits of prayer and patience, 
turning to the scriptures and listening to the still, small voice. If you listen to that still, small voice, truly great things will proceed in your own life. The influence of the Holy Ghost will change your character, and you will find that whatever your path, you will not have wasted your day of opportunity. Elder Holland taught that the second vital thing we take from life is our covenants. I believe that ordinance and covenants of the gospel are gifts from our loving Heavenly Father. I believe they are weapons against Satan and that they bring spiritual power. Covenants can make an enormous difference in our life. That is one reason that President Russell M. Nelson is urging us to make the temple a priority. After the announcement of several temples in April, he said that, quote, Construction of these temples may not change your life, but your time in the temple surely will. In that spirit, he continued, I bless you to identify those things you can set aside so that you can spend more time in the temple. End quote. Spending time receiving sacred ordinances and making and renewing covenants will bless every area of our lives. We can have faith in the Lord's arithmetic that He will multiply and magnify our efforts when we make ordinances and covenants a priority. There is much in your life you cannot control right now. You cannot always control if those you like don't seem to like you back. If you don't get the job or the internship you wanted so badly, if your family situation is less than ideal, or if you struggle with physical or mental health challenges. But there is something you can absolutely control. You can control if you will participate in gospel ordinances and how you will keep your covenants. And you will find that these ordinances will manifest the power of godliness unto you. And finally, Elder Holland taught that we take our family relationships into the next life. These are truly among the very vital few things that we must focus on and pay attention to. One morning I was reading Alma chapter 32. I had some unexpected insights. Perhaps because of some strain I was feeling in my family, verses that I usually read with faith in mind applied to family relationships. So when Amulek wrote tree, I thought relationships. And behold, as the tree beginneth to grow, ye will say, Let us nourish it with great care, that it may get root, that it may grow up and bring forth fruit unto us. And now, behold, if ye nourish it with much care, it will get root and grow up and bring forth fruit. But if ye neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will not get any root. Now this is not because the seed was not good, neither is it because the fruit thereof would not be desirable, but it is because ye will not nourish the tree, therefore ye cannot have the fruit thereof. So how do we nourish relationships? The same way we nourish faith and character, with great diligence and patience. If we have nourished family relationships when hard things happen, and they will, we will withstand the hard times and can continue enjoying the fruits that loving family relationships produce. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf said the following, quote, In family relationships, love is really spelled T-I-M-E, time, end quote. I tried to teach that principle in the talk I gave last October conference. Recently, I received an email from Haley, a member of the Church in Salem, Oregon, and mother of six, who learned this lesson on her own. Here's what she said, 
quote, After coming home last night from a couple long days of helping at our elementary school, a flat tire, doctor's visit, radiology appointment, and ER visit for one of my sick children, I was greeted with a kitchen full of dishes and life mess all over my house. I was exhausted, and honestly, I just wanted to shower and climb into bed. While I was trying to tidy the kitchen, my seven-year-old approached me and asked me if I would walk down to our basement and help him find a particular toy. My first thought was that I just wanted to get the kitchen cleaned and the kids to bed without interruption. He again asked if I'd help him. I then remembered the following from your talk in conference. When prompted, we can leave dishes in the sink or an inbox full of challenges demanding attention in order to read to a child, visit with a friend, babysit a neighbor's children, or serve in the temple. My insert, or help your child find a toy. We can see people not as interruptions, but as the purpose of life. She said, I looked at my son who was looking up at me, and I looked at my sink full of dishes and countertops littered with clutter, and I said out loud, Dishes, you have to wait. As he and I proceeded to walk down our stairs to the basement, my son Andrew said, Mom, you love me more than dishes, huh? (laughs) To which I responded an unequivocal yes. Then this morning, while helping him finish his homework for school, I said, Andrew, I love you. And he responded with, Yep, you love me more than dishes. (laughs) That became our new parenting mantra. I love you more than dishes, or insert any of the other thousand to-dos on our list. End quote. Haley is my example in this. She knows that each day is a gift from our loving Father in Heaven. You may not face the same situation. Your challenges may not be sinks and toys, but even today, this week, you will have the chance to lift and support and heal others. You can forge relationships that heal and encourage and redeem. Whatever your challenges, look up and see others around you. Don't see only the dirty dishes, the problem sets to finish, chapters to read, and finals to take, or your phone. Notice those around you who need help. You can show your sibling that you love him more than you love watching your favorite show. You can show that you care more about your roommate's feelings than you care about being right, that your concern for others in your ward is real, and that your affection isn't fake. And then you will have relationships that show you have not wasted your time on earth, but that you are joining in God's great work of lifting His children. This earth life is so short in the eternal scheme, but it determines so much. It is our day of opportunity. Use it well, and you will have opportunities you never dreamed of. It is my prayer that each of us can be intentional in the way we use our time and energy, making sure that time is spent on the vital few activities rather than the trivial many. This will bring happiness and peace not only in this life, but in the life to come. Let us use this season of renewal to recommit to avoiding distractions and keeping our focus on developing our character and increasing faith in Jesus Christ, on ordinances and covenants, and on nourishing loving relationships and helping those around us. This is Christ's Church, 
and those of us who have been baptized have taken his name upon us, that we may act like it, not only this Christmas season, his season, but always is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from Michelle D. Craig, and now we'll hear from Michael O'Levitt for his address, The Economics of Goodness. While I was governor of Utah, I attended a dinner at a mountain resort. The host asked each of the guests to introduce themselves, but added, as you do, please tell us an important lesson that you learned during the last year. One at a time, each person spoke. Now, This was a very impressive group of people that included university presidents, prominent business leaders, political figures. And it seemed like each participant felt they had a need to outdo the last in eloquence and in gravitas. Now, Shane, one of my protective service officers who traveled with me, attended the dinner. And I could sense his increasing discomfort as the task crept closer and closer to him. Finally, all of the eyes in the room were focused on Shane. He stood and sort of nervously introduced himself. As for the important lesson this year, he said, I protect dignitaries for a living, and I completed a class on advancing events. We learned that it's critical to always plan an escape route. And he paused put his hand on the side door that he sat next to and said, and I'm using mine right now and disappeared into the night. (laughs) It was a brilliant moment. There was a pause among this elite group and they erupted in laughter. The next year I attended the same meeting. Everyone remembered Shane's illustrated story about escape routes. The lesson, humor and humility is more enduring than hubris. I was reminded again of that meeting where I had the experience with Shane when I was invited by a global corporation to participate in a day-long meeting. The subject was about that matter on which all of you are thinking right now, the future. Again, it was attended by economists and futurists and a handful of corporate leaders. I felt a little awkward even being there. It was the summer of 1999. The meeting was held on the 107th floor of the World Trade Center. Huge windows revealed the New York Harbor. The Statue of Liberty was in the distance. It was an inspiring place to think about the future. The moderator started the meeting by describing a hypothetical scenario. Pretend that the year is 2015, he said. Looking back over the last 15 years, what was the most surprising thing that happened? Now, it is now to me a great irony that we were in the World Trade Center talking about the future. None of us could have known that on 9-11, just two years later, 
that very room in which we sat would be part of a historical event that could never have been contemplated. One by one, they began to respond with smart thoughts about the future. A banker spoke of a paperless currency system. An oil executive forecast tensions in the Middle East. A technologist talked about the far reaches of digitization. And a bit like Shane, I was feeling a growing anxiety and pressure as it crept closer and closer to me, and yet there was no side door available. <laughs> Only diversion would do. Since we're reflecting on the future, I said, I'm going to tell you who won the 2015 Nobel Prize in Economics. All of the economists in the room perked up. However, I said that the big surprise isn't who won. The big surprise is that the Nobel Prize in Economics was not won by an economist. It was won by a sociologist who advanced a new economic theory called the economics of goodness. It's a simple but powerful idea. Every nation or state has economic assets that produce wealth. It may be minerals, it may be a seaport, it may be climate, but there is a universal asset of immense value inherent in any community if we use it. And that power is simply the inclination of its citizens to do the right thing voluntarily. Let me illustrate, I said. Imagine the economic heft of a nation, a state, or a community that was free of drugs and alcohol abuse. Health care costs would plummet. Worker productivity would skyrocket. Families that are torn apart by abuse and financial hardship, wrought by substance abuse, would remain together. Welfare roles would fall. There would be less violence in society. We would build and maintain fewer prisons. Imagine the economic power of a nation able to invest trillions of dollars over time back into education and investment and research because of their deployment of this great power. Such a place would prosper. For a moment, there was silence in that room. And then a surprise. One of the participants, I'll call him Professor Cynical, <laughs> practically shouted at me, What do you mean by goodness? You're trying to turn this into some kind of a religious discussion. Before I could respond, a well-known economist beat me to it. Not true, he said. I'm an atheist. And this isn't about religion. It's about human behavior and the predictability of consequences. People who work hard do better than slackers. Those who are honest get in less trouble than those who cheat. People who are kind have more friends than those who are cruel. Communities where people serve and care for each other are safer than those where that's not true. Listening to him acquit that case, I thought to myself, this may be the only time I've ever said amen to an atheist. 
Here's the lesson. The economics of goodness applies to individuals as well as nations. People who work hard, those who are honest and reliable, have a better chance to succeed than those that don't. Now, there's a postscript to this story. In 2015, I got thinking, I wonder who did win the Nobel Prize in 2015? Well, it wasn't a sociologist. I was wrong about that. Nor was it giving the award for the economics of goodness. But the prize was awarded to the esteemed Princeton economist Angus Deaton. His contribution, however, was very much in the neighborhood of the economics of goodness. They awarded him the prize on the basis of his analysis of consumption, of poverty and welfare. In essence, the economics of human beings. The economics of goodness is not a new idea. It is not simply about money either. It is a fundamental truth, an eternal law, demonstrated in civilization after civilization and in individual life after individual life. Prophets simply and repeatedly have declared, if you keep my commandments, you will prosper in the land. Story number three. I was a 14-year-old boy. My local stake had a farm where we raised corn that would be provided for families in need. As service, we were expected to work on the farm. At the end of the summer, it was time to harvest the corn, and I grudgingly attended at the urging of a leader who reminded me I'd made a commitment. But I neglected to tell my mother where I was going. Once I was there, I was surrounded by other volunteers who, like me, were cutting and cooking and canning corn, and eight hours just flew by. By the time I got home, my mother had been frantically trying to find me. So I explained where I had been. Her irritation cooled. But then she asked me, how did you feel while you were serving? Actually, much to my surprise, had enjoyed it. I was proud of the cans of corn that we had stacked in the warehouse and how that was going to be used. And then with a single sentence, my mother taught a sermon that I have never forgotten. Mike, she said, we get our self-esteem from those we serve. I have found that to be true. It is as my mother suggested. Service is the source of our self-esteem. It is also the source of satisfaction and a source of healing. So when this big deal is over, you will leave the campus of Brigham Young University and you will find your way into a world that badly needs your light. May you remember that humor and humility is more endearing than hubris, that the economics of goodness apply to individuals as well as nations, that hard work, honesty, personal discipline makes a difference in your capacity to succeed, and perhaps most of all, that we will get our self-esteem from those we serve. Therefore, go. Go humbly to serve. Work hard. Be honest. Be reliable. And I 
testify to you that you will be blessed and success will be yours. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Building Your Character. We've just heard from Michael O. Levitt. After the break, we'll return with Robert H. Todd for So What Do You Really Want to Be When You Grow Up? This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Building Your Character. Next is Robert H. Todd, BYU Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the time of this address, titled, So What Do You Really Want to Be When You Grow Up? Have you ever thought carefully and deeply about what you really wanted to be when you grow up? It doesn't matter whether you've chosen to be an engineer, an economist, a psychologist, physician, a physicist, a sociologist, a scientist, a printer, a plumber, a philosopher, whatever. All of these professions can be wonderful in blessing the lives of others and can make you and bring you great fulfillment when well done. But what attributes do you really want to have as one of our Heavenly Father's children? What kind of person do you really want to be? Most importantly, what do you want to be like as you stand one day in front of God? What kind of character do you really want to have? In the quiet, reflective, and deep, soul-searching moments of your life, you've probably thought about this and have made at least some decisions. One day, I promise you, if you haven't already thought about this carefully, you will. And this experience will help you begin to see the need for the Atonement of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll begin to see where you are compared with where you really want to be, and you'll begin to feel your dependence upon our Savior and His Atonement. As you do this, your heart will begin to be softened, and the Holy Ghost will give you impressions of what you should do to be better. Not only that, but you'll begin to feel that you can be better because of your faith in Him and what He's done for you. You are of noble birthright. You are one of His children, and God will help you do it. Our Heavenly Father, because He loves us unconditionally, has given us a very special gift and the privilege of coming to this earth as a mortal being to use this gift with all of the challenges, difficulties, and opportunities that a mortal state provides. This special gift is our moral agency. Because we've been given this precious gift, we're the ones that will choose what we will become. Those circumstances for each of us and our individual choices will be different. The choices that we do make for all of us, no matter what our circumstances, will make us what we will become. We are our own judges. Some years ago, I heard a parable of an old Cherokee chief who was trying to teach his grandson about this principle. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight at times, and the fight is between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority 
lies, false pride, superiority, self-doubt, jealousy, and ego. The other is good. He's joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. This same fight is going on inside of you and inside of every other person, too. The grandson thought about what his grandfather had said to him for a minute and then asked, Grandfather, which wolf will win? The old chief simply replied, The one that I feed. President David O. McKay, a prophet of God, put it this way, Each one of us is carving a soul this very minute, our own soul. Is it going to be a deformed one, or is it going to be something admirable and beautiful? Yours is the responsibility. Nobody else can carve it for you. Parents may guide and teachers may help with suggestions. But each young man and each young woman has the responsibility to carve his or her own character. While the Savior walked the earth and taught his gospel in the land of Jerusalem, a certain lawyer asked him a question tempting him, saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two great commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The Savior also taught us, Come, follow me. The opportunity of this life, then, is to use our moral agency to choose to follow our Savior and to learn to love God and our fellow man as God loves us. The book of John says that God is love, and perfect love casteth out all fear. We can choose anything we really want, but the greatest opportunity we have is to choose to become like them. It's not always easy to love God and our fellow man. At times it takes great effort to do this, and we must learn to school the use of our agency and yield our hearts to God, as the prophet Helaman said in the Book of Mormon. Helaman spoke of a people who had learned why they were really here on this earth and acted accordingly. Listen to these words from this prophet. Nevertheless, they did fast and pray oft and did wax stronger and stronger in their humility and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ unto the filling their souls with joy and consolation, yea, even to the purifying and the sanctification of their hearts, which sanctification cometh because of their yielding their hearts unto God. As we choose to school our agency and practice yielding our hearts to God, we often bump into the natural man within us again and again. I'd like to share a story with you that helped me understand something about the natural man within each of us and how that natural man can react. When I was a boy, I had a wonderful little cocker spaniel dog named Smokey. Smokey liked to play ball by having me throw the ball as far as I could. Behind the shop in our backyard, the woodpile, and the fruit trees, the garden, wherever. Smokey would not give up until he found that ball and brought it back to me, only to repeat the cycle again and again. 
As you can imagine, for a little boy, Smokey became my best friend, and I loved to play with him day after day. Smokey had only one fault. He was not only obsessed with chasing and retrieving tennis balls, but he was also obsessed with climbing our front fence and chasing after loud trucks passing by on our side street. One day I heard a truck coming, and immediately I thought of Smokey. Before I could reach the front gate and stop him, he had climbed the gate and was already halfway across our front lawn, headed for the wheels of the truck, full speed. I called for him to stop as loud as I could, but it was no use. Within an instant, he was nipping at the rear wheels of the truck, running to keep up. Within a few seconds, one of his rear legs somehow slipped and got caught under the wheels, also pulling his pelvis under the wheels. Smokey was left in the street crying and yelping in tremendous pain. I ran over to him and tried to comfort him immediately as I got close enough. He bit my hand as hard as he could. I was astonished. Why would this wonderful dog that I love so much bite me? My mom came out of the house, and somehow we were able to get Smokey in the large burlap bag and into the car. At the vet's office, we were told that Smokey's body had been so badly hurt that he would have to be put to sleep. I was devastated and confused. What happened was not an easy thing for a little boy to understand. It took me some years to learn the lesson from the experience. Those that you love and who hurt often strike out and hurt those that they love most simply because they hurt. Have you ever noticed that sometimes this is how we treat our Heavenly Father and others when we hurt? This is not how our Savior acted when He hurt, when He was despised and spit upon by others, when He was crucified. It's not easy, but in the long run easier than any other alternative to learn to act like our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to love our fellow man and God no matter what hurt may come to us. With God's help, I know we can overcome the natural man and become like Him. Elder Jean R. Cook explained it this way, As we increasingly think and act like Him, the attributes of the natural man will slip away to be replaced by the heart and mind of Christ. Many years ago, I learned from a wonderful man who served as my mission president, Elder Glenn L. Rudd, that all of us need four things in our lives. We need to be loved. We need to be trusted. We need to be understood. And we need to feel that our work is appreciated. When any one or more of these four things are missing in our lives, we often will act as we ought not to act. Understanding this principle can be a great help in learning us to love others, no matter what they may do. It can also help us see at times why we are not acting as we ought to act. Ask yourself when you see a friend or a loved one letting the natural man take over and they are not acting as they ought to. Which one or more of these four needs is lacking in their lives or, for that matter, in our own lives when we are not acting as we ought to act? I want to make you a promise. If you see someone acting as they ought not to act, 
ask Heavenly Father if there is something you might do to help them feel more loved, more trusted, more understood, or their efforts more appreciated. If you ask sincerely, really wanting to help because you love them and God, the Holy Ghost will give you some inspiration, even revelation, concerning what you might do to be of help. Do you not see that one of the greatest mysteries of godliness that many never see is that when we use our agency to choose to give our love away, we gain more love and we become more like our Savior and our Heavenly Father? Does knowing this not give every one of us an added opportunity for service and a way to show love to our fellow men? Can we not see that we must learn to give away what we would hope to gain to become like God? This is what our Heavenly Father does for us. Do we really want to be like Him and our Savior when we grow up? Each one of us has a short window of opportunity to learn to yield our hearts to God, that is, to use mortality to become more like our Savior to learn to love others as God and our Savior love us. To illustrate this, I will share one last story. I knew a man who lived in Sugar City, Idaho, when the Teton Dam broke in 1976. I heard the story from another one of his friends, and I spoke with him to confirm its truthfulness some years ago before he passed away. I share it with you to illustrate how a man can come to love God and yield his heart to Him give God his agency, so to speak, because he only wants to do what God would want him to do, not what he would want to otherwise do. In 1976, President Spencer W. Kimball had asked us as members of the Church to fix up our homes, our barns, and our yards. President Kimball told us that non-members of the Church would judge the truthfulness of the Church by how well we took care of what we had been given, which I know to be true. One morning after President Kimball had given the Church this counsel, my friend was out in his front yard painting his fence and planting petunias with his wife. He would painted his barn the week before. His family had about 40 acres of land, and they were raising their seven children with the help of 40 milk cows. You get the picture. A neighbor stopped out in front of his home. The neighbor asked my friend what he was doing painting his fence and planting those flowers in his front yard. My friend kindly reminded his neighbor that President Kimball had asked us to fix up our homes and our yards, and he wanted to be obedient. My friend's neighbor chided him a bit, saying something like, Painting your barn and fence and now planting those flowers, that's not going to increase your milk production any. My friend simply said something like, you're probably right, but President Kimball has asked us to do it, and I want to do it. Within two weeks, the Teton Dam broke, and more than 200,000 acre-feet of water came down the Snake River Valley, destroying virtually everything in its path. I don't know if you can envision what more than 200,000 acre-feet of water is like. It was a wall of water about 10 feet high and 7 miles wide. Thinking of it more like an engineer, it's 200,000 acres of land covered with more than one foot of water, or one acre of land 
covered with a column of water more than 200,000 feet high. That's about 37 miles high. All of my friend's milk cows were destroyed. His barn was severely damaged. His house was mostly destroyed. The fence in front of his home, the one he'd been painting just a few days before, was gone, not to mention the petunias. A few days after the flood, my friend saw his neighbor, you remember, the one who chided him a bit for fixing up his place. Only this time he said something like, Aren't you sorry now with a certain spin on the word now? You took that time to paint your barn, fix your fences, and plant those flowers. My friend Marion hesitated for just a moment and then said, No, they were ready to be taken. My friend had learned to use his moral agency in his window of time wisely. By his obedience to a prophet of God, he was preparing himself to be taken, preparing himself to stand in front of our Heavenly Father with a character more like our Heavenly Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This, too, is your opportunity and mine, brothers and sisters. Would you like your confidence to wax strong in the presence of God? The scriptures teach us how we can do that. Let your bosom be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall your confidence wax strong in the presence of God. May I challenge you to an experiment upon my words today. In this day of headsets, iPods, and cell phones, and everyone living in their own somewhat isolated world, Start with simply looking people in the eye as you leave this devotional today and smile. Say hello as you walk across campus. Your whole day will change and someone else's will too. Be friendly and kind. Look for the good in others. Praise them for the good they do. Greet people, even those you don't know, maybe especially those you don't know. Lift them up. Who knows, you might even get a date with someone. There is way more isolation and negativism in this old world than there will ever be in the celestial kingdom. And what we do here and now will develop our spirituality, working against the natural man, like against gravity, so to speak, to become like God. How we decide we are going to treat others here and now can make all the difference in the world and in you. So what do you really want to be when you grow up? Do you want to be a person like our Savior or somebody who is all by themselves? Look for ways to lift others up. Cease to find fault. Ask our Heavenly Father how you might help someone feel more loved, more trusted, more understood, and their efforts more valued and appreciated. The Holy Ghost will give you feelings how to do this if you ask for them and really want them. He has promised us this. I plead with you earnestly to ask our Heavenly Father for the gift of faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. When we have faith in Him, which will come as a gift when we sincerely want it and live for it, we can be blessed with hope that His Atonement will apply to us, yes, imperfect us, but to have faith in Him, we must know what He's like and want to be like Him. 
If we genuinely ask for this kind of faith in Him, we can have our hearts changed so we'll want to love God and our neighbor. We will do all we can to love one another, just as the Savior did. The Savior said, Come, follow me. I think my little granddaughter Emmett got it just right. I, too, am trying to be like Jesus. I love you, brothers and sisters. I am grateful for the privilege I have been given to address you today and to bear my testimony of my Savior and of His love for you and for me. I know that He lives and that He will help you and me keep His commandments to love Him and to love one another and to become like Him. I have come to know that when I yield my agency to Him, yield my heart to Him, no holding back, He will give me even more agency. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Building Your Character, with thoughts from Michelle D. Craig, Michael O. Levitt, and Robert H. Todd. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.